Let's go ahead and turn our Bibles one last time to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 16. And we'll be looking at the last few verses here. Verse 21 through 27. It says, Timotheus, my work fellow, and Lucius, and Jason, and Sosipater, my kinsmen, salute you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you. And the Lord Gaius, mine host, and of the whole church, saluteth. You, Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, saluteth you, and Quartus, a brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him that is of, the, of power to establish you according to my gospel and a preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which, has kept, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith to God only wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. It was on. So it's just, the battery must be dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've given to us. We thank you. Um, for this time now that we can dig into your word and learn from you, God. I just pray that you would give us understanding and wisdom and knowledge of your word this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In the name of Christ, amen. Let me just double check it. So to back up and do a review of the whole book, starting in Romans 1.1. Now, obviously we're coming up to the close of the book here. And it's been a long journey through Romans. We've seen, you know, the, the guilt of man, that man has fallen and, and dead in sin through the beginning of Romans there. And we saw the gospel proclaimed starting in Romans 3 and verse 21. Um, and onward and then we've seen the application or the implication of the gospel is the fact that the, you know, the spirit comes and regenerates us makes us alive we are adopted into the family of God and I think oftentimes as believers we forget about that part of it right we always think about justification and, and future glorification but we oftentimes just glaze over adoption as though we weren't adopted into the family of God and as I was driving here this morning um, it was on an album that I had listened to, but Lloyd Jones, Martin Lloyd Jones, as he's he's quoting from Romans chapter eight, he says, and he oh, it is a quote from Romans chapter eight, but we are made heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So we we are the, and, and we'll see. Um, in Hebrews, we're called Christ's brethren. We're the brothers and sisters of Christ. So we've been adopted into the family. We are made Christ's body. 
we saw obviously election and reprobation stuff in Romans 9. We see the, the, the Jews that had rejected Christ, that sought to, to earn their own righteousness by the works of the law and failed because nobody can do that. That only the only way we earn righteousness is by through Christ who earned righteousness by perfectly keeping the law and by looking to him in faith and then we're declared righteous. We saw all of that in Romans. Paul's declared all of that. He has expounded on that for us. And we come here to the end of it. <clears throat> and remember, as I mentioned the last couple weeks, it's almost uh, bookends of the book almost mirror themselves in a sense of Paul greets Rome, the church at Rome, in, in general, and then at the end, he, he greets them in particular as he's naming all these saints. And he has, remember at the very beginning, he has this desire, he says, I long to come to you. He wanted to come to Rome with the gospel, and then we see here at the end that he's still expressing the same desire. He longs to bring the gospel to Rome. And now we come to this portion here. My three points are a little long in the, in the titles of the points, but it's the first one is the reconciliation of people groups for the Lord Jesus Christ. The second point is the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the third point is the obedience of the nations through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first point here is the reconciliation of people groups for the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I put it in my notes, but I already said it. You know, the end of the book, it, it, it mirrors the beginning by the fact that Paul addresses those in Rome in general. And in, here he's being specific in the end of the book. And how he had this desire to go to Rome with the gospel in the beginning. And he's expressing it again here at the end. But now we come to this portion and he's not saying salute those who are in Rome. Remember, he just did that. He was naming all these saints that were at Rome and he says, salute this brother. Salute this brother. Welcome them. Welcome them. Commend Phoebe. Salute this brother. Salute that brother. That's what he was saying. And it means to receive joyfully. It's not just like a salute. Like It's, it's to receive them joyfully. So we receive joyfully you Christians that be at Rome. That's what Paul just dealt with. And remember it's, remember, it's all the ones that are in Christ that we salute and welcome. Remember, that was the, the big thing that I brought out in that section. It was this person in Christ, this person laboring in Christ. In Christ, it's over and over again in that, that portion to salute those that are in Christ. And then he says, and mark and avoid those that cause division within the church. So it's salute and welcome to receive joyfully all those brothers and sisters that are in Christ, but those that cause division, mark them and avoid them. And now he goes to those that are with me, salute you. They receive you joyfully. Not only are we receiving you, we're saying receive us joyfully, we're saying we receive you joyfully, we salute you as well. And the first one that he mentions in verse 21, Timotheus, my work fellow. Now, I don't know if your Bible actually says Timotheus. It's the name for Timothy. This is the same Timothy here that the books of 1 and 2 Timothy are written to. Timothy, who is here called his work fellow or fellow worker, 
You know, Paul has some very endearing words for Timothy. He loved Timothy. Timothy was what you would call a Hellenistic Jew. His father was Greek and his mother was Jewish. And we know that they didn't necessarily follow the Jewish customs as a family. First, because his father wasn't Jewish. And for the most part in that culture, in that first century culture, what the father did, the family did. It's pretty much the same in our culture, even though we don't write, we don't, we don't admit it. But the father is a lazy bum. The family goes the same way. The father gets up on Sunday mornings and gets himself dressed and comes to worship the king of kings. His family comes with him. But we know that they, they didn't follow the Jewish customs because first his father was a Greek. But also, Timothy hadn't, was not circumcised. And that was part of the Jewish custom, right? He wasn't circumcised until he was a man. And it says in Acts 16, I'm going to read it. I wasn't going to have his turn there. I'm just going to read it because I don't want us to go too long this morning. It says in Acts 16, 1 through 3, Then came he to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess, and believed. But his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. So this was an adult male who chose to be circumcised for the reason of reaching the Jews with Paul. Timothy wanted to be his fellow worker, and what, what did Paul do when he went into the cities? What was the first thing that he did? He walked into the synagogues and preached to the Jews. And Timothy wanted to go along with him and he wanted his voice to be heard. And they would not listen to him because his father was a Greek and he didn't grow up in the Jewish customs. So he went ahead and did that. So they would listen to him. So Paul, or, I mean, Timothy went through that to work alongside of Paul. But not only that, Paul's thoughts towards Timothy were that he, he was his son. It says in 1 Timothy 1-2, it says, Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith. Paul considered him his son. Now we know Paul wasn't naturally his father, right? He wasn't saying he was actually, this is actually my son, because Timothy's father was a Greek, and we know that Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. However, he saw him as a son because he brought him up in the faith. That's the relationship that spiritual leaders will have with those placed in their care, right? As a father. As though they are his children, so they'll protect and provide and care for them. Now turn with me, though, to Philippians chapter 2. And verse 19. This is Paul writing to the Philippians here. He says, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you. Same guy. That I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But you know the proof of him that as a son with the Father, he has served with me in the gospel. 
we see a little more of how Paul felt about Timothy, right? He was like-minded. He said, I have nobody else who's like-minded with me except for Timothy. And he would care for their state. He would care for them. That's why Paul was sending Timothy to, Philippian, to the Philippians. Because he would care for them and he was like-minded with Paul. He would not seek his own, is what he says right there. But he would seek to glorify Christ in his service. Now, Timothy was the first of his list of cohorts here. Then we have Lucius, who was only mentioned in passing in Acts 13 as a prophet or a teacher. It says in Acts 13.1, Now there were, were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manian, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So the next guy, you have Timothy, who was a pastor, right? That's why the, they're called the pastoral epistles who Paul was writing to Timothy, how to run your church. This is why we go to First and Second Timothy and Titus to learn how we should run our church. Because that's what it was written for. That's the didactic portion of that literature, is to teach us how to run the church. But you also have Lucius here, who was a prophet or a teacher. Then there was Jason. Turn back to Acts 17. Because I think we need to see this. Not all of these people are mentioned anywhere else in Scripture apart from here in Romans 16, so we won't see all of them. But Acts 17 and verse 1. Now when they had passed through... Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and the, the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king one Jesus. First, what hypocrites the Jews were. Did they not believe in King Yahweh? But now they're saying, they're, they're trying to bring these men forward so they could be persecuted because they're saying, there's another King. He protected here, Jason. He protected and took in the apostles. He opened his home to them. But notice what the Jews said about them. They turned the world upside down. Now when it says world here, it doesn't mean that they made the earth spin on its axis and turned upside down. It's figuratively speaking. And it's speaking mainly about the Roman Empire or the por portion of the earth inhabited by the Greeks. 
Now, during the first century, that would include Jerusalem. I mean, Rome owned Jerusalem too. That's why the Jews paid their taxes to Rome. That's why when you were walking up to the road into Jerusalem, there are crucifixes on both sides of the Rome road with men hanging there dying every single day. The crucifixes weren't Jewish crucifixes, they were Roman crucifixes. And it was to tell you, as you're walking into Jerusalem, don't mess with Rome, or this is your fate. Rome owned Israel. So it was a known world at the time, and the apostles turned it upside down. The world was in one accord, worshiping pagan deities, and the apostles came preaching Christ and turned it upside down. And Jason took them in to receive persecution for it too. The next one in the, in the list of cohorts with Paul is Sasapater. I don't know how you say his name. I know what his name means. But it, Paul just says he's his kinsman. That's it. He says, Timotheus, my work fellow, and Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen, salute you. So that's it. He's relation to Paul. He's one of his relation. It's interesting that his name means Savior of the Father, though. Tertius is the next one mentioned. And it, he's only mentioned here. This is the only place Tertius is found in the New Testament. But it's pretty important, I would think, right? Because he says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. So, you know, there's a debate on who wrote Hebrews, right? But every, you say, who wrote Romans? Everybody's going to say Paul. But then you raise your hand and say, no, Tertius wrote it. Because that's what he says. Tertius wrote the letter. Through the dictation of Paul, But Tertius wrote it. And it says, Gaius, mine host, and of the whole church, salutes you. Gaius could be a couple of people. I mean, he could only actually be one person, but there's a couple of different options that he could be. And here are the options. One, who accompanied Paul in his travels. That seems likely. A man from Derby who went with Paul from Corinth in his last journey to Jerusalem. That sounds likely too, right? Or as a man of Corinth who was his host in his second sojourn in that city. And the, the Apostle John addresses Gaius when he writes to one of his letters. It's unto Gaius. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, he baptized, he said, I'm thankful that I baptized none but Crispus and Gaius. So it's maybe him. Maybe the one that he baptized. Maybe the one that he preached Christ to him. He, he believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul baptized him. And he accompanied him with, with him on his missionary journeys. I wouldn't take a stance on which one it is. Because I don't believe it's that important. And commentaries don't really help you on this matter. But he hosted Paul, that's what he says. Mine host. And the church. 
So it wasn't just Paul, but the church also he hosted. Then we have Erastus. It says, Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, salutes you. This chamberlain of the city, this is the overseer or the treasurer or the governor. It's used figuratively as a pastor as well or a preacher. So this guy was a higher up in the government of Corinth. Maybe the governor of the city. And then we have Cortus, a brother. That's all he says about him. And that's the only place he's mentioned. His name is in the Word of God because he was a brother in Christ and he was with him. So we can see from this list of men that accompanied Paul, it was men from all walks of life. We have a Jew, right, in Sosipater, his kinsman. He was a Jew. We have a Gentile with Timothy. We have simply a man who opened his home to the apostles. And we possibly have the governor of Corinth. We have a pastor with Timothy and possibly Gaius. And we have one who is simply just a brother. By this we can see that God brings men and women together from all walks of life and to be in agreement on the very things of the faith. They were in agreement on this. They had one goal, one mission, and it was the Great Commission and the establishment and advancement of God's kingdom for God's glory. Whether it was just a brother or the governor of the city. They were all willing to lay down their necks for one another for Christ's name's sake. Even if they didn't completely understand the other, other's way of living. Right? Do you think it would have been hard being a Jew and a Gentile in that first century and traveling together? One that has never touched pork? And the other one has probably feasted upon it his whole life? One that, that claimed to worship Yahweh? his whole life, and knows the Old Testament, and one that had 120 fake gods? Do you think that stuff would have been hard to go through? One that is a pastor, and one that's the governor. But there's separation of church and state, right? Not in this band of misfits. Imagine the debates that they would have had, like me and Ben have every Sunday morning. A pastor and a governor of a city. I'm sure they had their differences, but they put them aside to further this mission. And what was the mission? Turning the world upside down. So let's move on here. The second point, the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 24. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, if you have possibly an ESV or a NIV maybe, verse 24 isn't even going to be in your Bible. It will literally read verse 23, then verse 25. And you know what's kind of amazing about that is that people oftentimes read the Bibles and don't realize that the verse actually isn't even there. 
there's a, there's other verses like that too, but um, I'm not going to get into a, an expositional and textual criticism this morning or to in, in a debate on it. It's in our text here today, and even if it wasn't in our text in verse 24, it is in verse 20. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now some debate that a scribe accidentally wrote the end of verse 20 again as verse 24. I don't know, but I do trust that God has preserved his word throughout all generations. And verse 24 is true and biblical. John Gill makes a nice point at the repetition of verse 20 and verse 24. He says that Tertius wrote verse 20, but then Paul wrote verse 24. And you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, here's why. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 16 through 18, this is Paul. He says, Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always, by all means. The Lord be with you all. And then he says, The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This is signature of Paul. That's how he signed his letters. So it's Tertius, you know, he wrote the whole letter and ended with verse 23 and hand a pen to Paul so Paul could sign it. And that's his signature. Paul opens his letters in the same way as well, doesn't he? Proclaiming grace and peace to all those he addresses. You never had to question what Paul wanted for the people he was dealing with. He wanted them in the grace, peace, and love of Jesus Christ and their knowledge of him to grow. That's the reason for the letters. Because Paul doesn't just write the words grace and peace and then talk about the weather or the sports sporting events or anything else, right? He doesn't say grace and peace to you who are in Rome. How did you like that football game last night, guys? Grace and peace to you all. Amen. Goodbye. No. It's filled with great, meaty doctrine. He, he, he shows us the gospel. He, 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 the whole letter was about grace and peace and love of Jesus Christ shown to us through the gospel. And he wants his readers to feast upon it. And Paul, in usual fashion as well, breaks out in what's called doxology. Now notice his doxology is teaching as well. It's not just the same line with little meaning repeated over and over again like some contemporary music, right? It's pointing to Jesus Christ and proclaiming His truth to His hearers. That's what he says in verse 25. Now to Him that is able... to that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now to Him. That's doxology. Now look to Him. He closes the letter by saying, look to Christ. Because He has the power to establish you according to the gospel. This means to establish you means to stand immovable. It means to set in a certain position or direction. That's what the gospel does, right? It's not just some message that we heard 20 years ago and moved past it. 
It's not like, well, you know, I believed the gospel 20 years ago. Now, I'm, I'm, now I'm, I focus on just eschatology because that's a deeper thing in the faith. That's not what a Christian does. They stay focused on the gospel and they grow by it. They stand immovable in it. That's what he says there. They stand immovable in the gospel and it points their focus in the right direction. And that direction is to Jesus Christ. And He should be our focus, as it says, in the preaching of Jesus Christ. He has the power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Or, to, or like the writer of Hebrews says, you know, he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's where he tells you to look upon, right? To look upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But it doesn't end there. He doesn't just say, look upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He says, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's gospel. It's not just look to Jesus, but look to see what He did, what He fulfilled, what He completed in the gospel. Look unto Him who stood in your place. Preach Him who died for your sins. Proclaim Him who is risen and seated at the right hand of the Father. And stand in this truth, immovable, and point in the right direction. If you could, picture John the Baptist when Jesus came on the scene. What does He do? Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. He pointed in the right direction. He didn't say, still follow me. He says, go after Him. I must decrease and He must increase. And you believe, better believe John the Baptist stood immovable in that Gospel and it cost him his head. What a way to end the letter. By doing what he did throughout the whole letter. <laughs> pointing to Christ. It's like, Paul, you're telling me to look to Christ. Haven't you been doing that since Romans 1? Well, yes, I have. And I will continue to do that even after Romans 16 is finished. And he did it all the way until he lost his head as well. But there's more. Third point, the obedience of the nations through the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 25 again. It says, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. The word for revelation here is a word that we may know well. It's a word whence we get apocalypse. It's apocalypsis. Now we've made this word mean when you when we think about when you go out into the world today and you say apocalypse, people think that you're talking about the end of the physical world. That the apocalypse is upon us. The world is ending. That's not what it meant in the Bible. It meant to lay someone bare. It's to, to disclose the truth. That's what it means. It was something that was hidden before, but is visible now. Actually, one of the definitions says 
to make naked. You're covered and all of a sudden now you're not, right? It's concerning things that were before unknown. Now let me say this, that Paul isn't saying that this is a new revelation in the sense of it not being in the Old Covenant. As we went through Romans, literally Paul, time and time again, kept on saying, as it is written, quoting Old Testament, bringing the Old Testament over and showing how this is not new truth, guys. Yes, the Messiah has come. Yes, he's established a new covenant. But it was foretold of old. So he's not saying it was not there at all. It wasn't as clear in the old, first, because it wasn't happening. And also because the people just didn't see it. We know this. You read through the Gospels. What happens? They didn't know. Jesus was going to die. What, Lord? Let's build a house for you up here on this mountain. Don't go down there. No, I have to suffer and die. And three days later, I will raise again. They didn't understand it. They didn't see it. But what they really didn't see was this mystery that he's talking about here. Is that this gospel would be made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. That the gospel wasn't simply for Israelites, but was for the nations. You know, there's still groups today that miss this. They have the New Testament and still miss this truth. They still say all the scriptures for Israelites and Gentiles don't get a part in the kingdom. However, here and many other places in scripture, we know that the gospel has not only been promised to the nations, but is going forth and will continue to go forth into the nations. The apostle also hints at the fact that it was in the Old Testament. He says, by the scriptures of the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament prophets there. It was there. And we need not to go and see all of it. Obviously, we could take another hour and I could show you verse after verse that's showing the promise that God is going to save the kingdoms, save the nations. We could think of one probably right off the top of our head that's pretty clear with God, with Abram. Abraham. He was Abram in Genesis 12. And he says... In Genesis 12, 2, he says, And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse thee that curseth thee. Curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now, there's many groups today that takes this stuff completely out of context and doesn't use see it through the new covenant lens that we have. We know from the New Testament that this is talking about those being blessed in Christ, Right? It's not just saying if somebody was of the seed of Abraham in the sense of them being an Israelite. Abraham's seed, according to Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, is Jesus Christ. That's who Abraham's seed is. So when he says, and it's, it's further in Genesis there, he says, in your seed will all families of the nation be blessed. That seed that he was talking about wasn't Isaac. It was Jesus And then Paul also says in Galatians. Actually, let's just turn there. Galatians chapter 3.
I'm looking for it. Verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Same thing right here. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to thy seed, what does it say there? Which is Christ. Christ was his seed. And I look down at um, verse 29. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. All families in Christ are blessed and is going forth into the ends of the earth. That was the promise. As many as you could count the, the stars in the sky, that's as many as are going to be in Christ. If you want to go out to the beach and count the sea, the, the, uh, the sand, that's as many as are going to be in Christ. And Christ is one seed, and all those that are in Christ are His seed, are Abraham's seed, and heirs, according to the promise, heirs of what? The earth. That was the promise to Abraham, right? Look as far as you can see, Abraham. All of this is yours. And what was one of the promises Jesus made in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And none of that was in my notes. So let me get back to my notes here. All families in Christ are blessed. And it says, unto the obedience of faith. The promise, let me go back actually to Romans. The revelation of the mystery. The mystery was that God was going to save the Gentiles. He was going to bring in the nations. He was going to save people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. And it was being played out right here in this first century. But not just that he would save them, but it says, unto the obedience of faith. He made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. Faith. We see this happen, happening today. Just as Paul saw it happening in his day. The very fact that Paul was writing to the Romans was proof of this. You're like, why? Well, because the Romans were Gentiles. The Romans would have never received the gospel if Christ wouldn't have came and established that new covenant and sent his people out into the nations. Because they would have kept that gospel there at Jerusalem. But we know after the resurrection of Paul, or the resurrection of Paul, he'd be resurrected too, but the resurrection of Christ, and he ascended, and he sent forth his people, he sent forth his spirit, which empowered them to go preach the gospel. What happened? It exploded. It didn't stay in Jerusalem anymore. And you know, God made sure of that. You know how he made sure of that? He destroyed Jerusalem. The gospel's not staying here anymore. You guys, I know you feel safe here in Jerusalem, in your house, in your nice cozy house, but you got to leave because this city is being destroyed. So they went out and took the gospel message and God starts saving the nations and the gospel goes to Rome and God saves people there at Rome and they start a church and Paul is writing to these Gentiles. We can see this gospel message being made known unto the nations for the obedience of faith. 
And this conversion of the nations and obedience of faith, it says, is to God. In verse 27, it says, To God, only wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. It's in response of God saving His people, we are obedient to God through Jesus Christ. And our obedience is through Jesus Christ. To God and for His glory forever. That's what the end of the book of Romans is for. This whole book is a means to this end. That all nations are obedient unto God. That the nations would believe and be obedient to God through Jesus Christ for His glory forever. And that's how Paul closes the book. And that's how I'll close it. Look to Christ. Be obedient to Him for His glory forever. Let's get into our application. It's going to be a little different in our application today, but some, some of it's going to be the same. But the call to faith and repentance to, to an unbeliever that may be sitting here, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to bid you to come to Him this morning. To walk through this life without Him is to have the wrath of God abiding on you, as it says in John 3.36. And at any moment, He could end your life. It's around 160,000 people will die today. We don't like to think about this kind of stuff. It's almost two every second. Every single second, two people die and step off into eternity. As I'm preaching this message this morning, around 7,000 people died. Death is a reality for all of us. All of you probably know somebody that died. And even if we don't, we know some people that will. Death takes all of us. And the scary part about death is we don't know when it will come. It could come today on our way home for all of us. God holds our life in His hands. And if you're His enemy this morning, what a fearful thing that should be. If you don't know Jesus Christ and perish, you will forever be under the wrath of God. And the good news though is that Jesus Christ came down from heaven and took on flesh. He became like us. He was tempted in like manner as us as what was read from our confession this morning. However, He didn't fall into temptation but overcame it. He did what our first father, Adam, didn't do. He kept the law perfectly and fulfilled righteousness. He then went to the cross and died for the sins of His people to pay the eternal punishment that was due. The eternal one took away the eternal debt that His people owed through His death, then rose from the grave defeating death for His people, taking away the sting of death. So death has no more victory over His people. He's ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father and commands all men everywhere to repent. So as an ambassador of Christ this morning, I'm bidding you to repent of your sins and believe upon Him. Jesus says in Matthew 11, He says, Come unto Me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to Him this morning and rest. Now I'm going to close with a different point of application that I usually do. I'm going to kind of combine both points into one this morning. And I, I'm going to just call it the call to close the book or the letter. Paul wrote this lengthy letter, Romans, not so men and women would simply be great theologians with a head full of knowledge. That's not the purpose that Paul wrote this. He wasn't given a seminary class so that this young man could, could get a big head and have all this knowledge so he could win debates. He didn't write Romans 8 and 9 so that men and women would debate and fight about election. He wrote it so that we would believe it and be obedient. That's what this book is about. Paul calls it his gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ and the salvation of his that produces good works and obedience unto God. That's the purpose. So if we gain anything by this book, by going through this book, I hope we don't just gain knowledge that sits in our head waiting for a fight. But that we gain obedience unto Him and His Word. That we can see clearly the Gospel of Jesus Christ and lay down more of our lives for Him. That we would seek to glorify Him in all of our doings. Is that not what he says? To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Not just one time, forever. And that we would take this knowledge unto the world and see God make the nations obedient unto Him as well. That's the whole point of Paul's letter. Remember back in chapter 1, Verse 16 and 17. I don't know. A couple of us were here then. It was Paul's thesis statement to the letter. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. This is Paul's thesis statement to this letter. It's that the gospel goes forth and converts the nations, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles, and that they shall live by faith. That's obedience. And he's closing the book the same way. Do you think Paul had a purpose in this letter? He did, and that's what it was. That you believe and be obedient. Notice when we go through when we went through this letter too. It's not like 1 Corinthians or Galatians. In the sense of Paul didn't pick a fight with these Romans. He didn't say, I see that you guys are doing this, and I, and I heard by so and so that this person's doing that. I can't believe you guys are doing this. Repent. He doesn't do that in this book. Though we can guarantee there were sins in that Roman church, right? Why? Because there were sinners in it. 
He simply expounds on the gospel to lead them to obedience. I pray that as we close this book, each of us can come out on the other side of the book with not only a knowledge of our Lord, but with heartfelt obedience to Him as well. That's what Paul wanted. And that's what I want for us by going through the book. For His glory and the advancement of His kingdom. Amen.